This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. Every August we go on holiday, so this month we've decided to share some of our works in progress. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. An excerpt from The Book of Joni, written and read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 9 minutes, 11 seconds. My name is Kelly Shriver, and this is an excerpt from my novel in progress, The Book of Joni which is an irreverent, modern-day retelling of the biblical Jonah story. In this section, Levi prepares for the hurricane that's about to hit Cape Cod, then Joni invades his home and he captures her. The closest grocery store was Mighty Mart, and hundreds of panicked shoppers had swept its shelves bare. Workers were boarding up the front windows, and the lights dimmed as I pushed my cart, seeking sustenance. Not many emergency supplies remained except duct tape, because everyone knows it won't prevent your windows from shattering. It could help if a shutter broke, though, so I grabbed a few rolls. Two teenaged workers peeked around the end of the row, then hid to snicker. I was used to impoliteness, especially in the grocery store. Old women would hand me cans of low-fat soup. A small child once proclaimed to his embarrassed parents that I looked like a parade balloon. The very old and young mean well, and I appreciate their lack of guile. Most people, though, approach me in much more insidious ways. Soon after Mother moved out and I was at Mighty Mart alone, a chubby housewife pushed past me to grab some ice cream and whispered, You're disgusting. I learned how much the presence of Agnes on these small errands had protected me. Storms tend to bring out the best and worst in everyone on the Cape. I heard the minimum wagers daring each other to harass me. Okay, I'll do it, the female said. She stepped into the middle of the back of the aisle, where I was heading, and before I could look away, she lifted her Mighty Mart smock and showed me her breasts. I froze and looked down. I refused to change direction. The clerks ran when they heard my cart's wheels start squeaking again. I scanned for a manager, but suspected the higher-ups had gone home to their families. Then I heard the announcement that the store was closing. I found enough dry goods in five minutes to last me a week. Since the frozen pizzas and heat-up dinners had sold out, I chose staples like pasta and rice. People can't believe it, but I don't have a sweet tooth. Then I pushed my cart to the checkout. Caitlin, to aisle six, please, the loudspeaker said. The manager was watching me from a windowed room half a story above the main floor. Caitlin was the one who'd flashed me, and she took her time arriving to ring up my groceries. I had no recourse. The store was otherwise empty, but I needed to leave before the storm worsened. I squeezed past the candy rack to unload my cart from the front. She beeped everything through, and as I paid, she said to me, Don't worry, I'm sure you'll float. No dignified response exists for these people. I had considered taking out my phone and saying, Lift up your shirt again and I'll take your picture. But she would interpret my words as a request, not a threat. With her manager hiding up in the office, she could insult me carte blanche. The rain soaked the inside of my trunk as I loaded everything in. Three other cars remained in the parking lot, two trucks and a Jetta near mine. It had to be Caitlin's. There were Mardi Gras necklaces hanging from the rearview mirror. 
I shoved my cart as hard as I could, but wind toppled it before it reached the Jetta. Ashamed at my lack of impulse control and relieved that the storm had eradicated any damage I would have done, I eased myself into my Lincoln. I hadn't spent as much time at Mighty Mart as usual, so I'd be home with plenty of time to unload my car before Bob Barker put the first item up for bids. I pulled into my driveway three minutes later, planning how many bags I should carry in to minimize the number of trips. Immobility didn't plague me quite yet, but I placed a premium on efficiency of action, especially in the face of catastrophic weather. I could see waves crashing beyond Nina's house, but my shutters still held firm. Our house, first Agnes and Zeke's and now mine, had never leaked yet. My timing should have been perfect. I'd settle into my recliner just in time for the price is right. Big problem, though. At that moment, ten minutes before ten, I saw my television leaving the house. Lost in thought about the grocery store humiliation, I hadn't noticed the red Fiero idling right in front of my front walkway. A guy in sandals was holding the TV in front of him. He didn't even see me as he shuffled toward his open trunk. I heaved myself out of the car as quickly as I could manage and reached my small front porch just in time to face a second hippie, this one female. She was holding a pillowcase. I thought they only did that in old-fashioned movies, full of my belongings. She froze and yelled over my shoulder, Quinn! Then, realizing her advantage over me in terms of agility, darted past my left arm. I didn't reach for her. The couple, whose physical similarity mesmerized me, stood arguing by the trunk. They appeared to launch a game of rock-paper-scissors. I couldn't understand why they didn't run away. The woman, the apparent winner of the game, stepped into the driver's seat, and the man sprinted toward me. I was standing on the porch with a grocery bag in each hand, and felt mildly offended that he thought I would let him rob me some more before I would drop a bag of food. He entered my house, and I followed. See here, I said, which felt more forceful than, excuse me. I heard him pleading in my living room. I set my bags on the kitchen floor and approached the doorway. On my couch, a woman lay on her stomach, with one arm brushing the floor. The man named Quinn shook her, and she waved him away. Come on, he said. The fat guy's here. He'll call the cops. You've got to get up. Go on without me, she said. This is all my fault, all mine and oxy-something pills. She showed no signs of following him. "'Can't you call Mitch?' Quinn demanded. "'He could help, right?' "'No, no, don't tell Mitch. I'm running away from him.' "'For the love of Jah,' Quinn said. "'This is it. We have to ditch you if you won't get up.' "'Go,' she said. "'I suppose I should have dialed 911, but I didn't want to miss their negotiation.' She said, "'Mitch isn't mad at you. He's mad at me. Just go.' You're full of it, Joni, Quinn said, and he ran right past me in the kitchen on his way out. Remember, I tried, he yelled back at her before he plunged through the open front door into the deluge. I expected to hear the Fiero peel away, but the driver had to negotiate the half-flooded street in a much less theatrical manner. So Joni, at the height of neediness, had been delivered somehow to my own couch. I couldn't believe my luck. Or hers. I cleared my throat, contemplating the proper introduction. She sat up and looked at me. Her glazed eyes gained a new lucidity. "'I gotta go,' she said. She sprang up and held both arms out for balance and charged at me. She bared her teeth with determination. I saw the gold crown on her upper right incisor. I couldn't allow her to escape. 
In her condition, running out into the hurricane would prove suicidal. And I couldn't help thinking there might be a bigger plan at work here. Why had she appeared at my house just in this moment? Yellow had said, There are no coincidences. And to think, I used to think that phrase was coined to assign meaning to meaninglessness. Bracing my arms against either side of the doorway, I prepared for her to hit me. It never happened. She lurched to her right and hit the woodwork instead of my stomach. She'd managed to hoist a huge purse onto her left shoulder as she left the couch, and I grabbed for it. I pulled her into a big bear hug. She was much smaller and weaker than me, but she was throwing us both off kilter. She felt like a wiry cat in my arms. I feared she might bite me. So very gently, almost in slow motion, I fell back into the side, into the kitchen, bringing her down with me. It felt more like a tumble than a wipeout. Joni didn't scream, but she let out a groan that turned into a squeak when we landed. The hippies had flung the naked pillow to the tile floor, so I placed Joni's head on it, and I could feel her giving up. Careful not to crush her, I straddled the back of her legs over her hamstrings, and I held her hands at the small of her back. My words sounded so familiar to me. Hello, Joni, I'm Levi. This is your big chance. Now you get to turn your life around. Instead of screaming, she just began to cry real tears, smearing my pillowcase with a lot of cheap makeup. She reeked of sweated-out booze and body odor and dirty wet hair. She smelled worse than my father ever had. He never exuded marijuana fumes on top of all that. My door blew back and forth as the wind thrashed everything that wasn't tied down. Rain is soaking my entryway rug, I said, and my groceries are still in the car. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, she said. I'm fairly certain her tone was sarcastic. The end. An excerpt from The Bartender's Daughter, written and read by Ann Rushton. Listening time, eight minutes. My name is Ann Rushton, and the following is an excerpt from my novel in progress, The Bartender's Daughter, which is a modern-day love story complete with a sick father, the Iraq War, a drunken lawyer for a lover, and a century-old bar threatened by an epic flood. In this scene, my protagonist, a young woman named Ryan Hill, is with a man who has been pulled over by the police. The man has been arrested for DUI, and Ryan spends time waiting for a cab with the second cop on the scene, a man she will eventually marry. The first cop deposited Trevor in the back of the police car, and as he slid into the driver's seat, said something to the second cop, and they laughed, the sound reverberating across the parking lot. And then her failure of a one-night stand was driven off. Still chuckling, the second cop sauntered back to Ryan, as if he were a waiter bringing her a check or something, as if putting a man in the back of a police car was no big deal. Maybe it wasn't. To him. Of course it wasn't. We're charging your boyfriend with DUI, he said, almost apologetically. We're going to have to impound his car. Do you have anyone you can call? Ryan's stomach unclenched. They were letting her go. But she had left her cell phone at home, wanting to avoid a confrontation with David. She considered what to do. Call who? Gretchen? Molly? Even David? This would certainly show him. It was nearly 2 a.m. The cop spoke again. You want me to call you a cab? Ryan shrugged. 
She crossed her arms. Sure. She hesitated and then said, thanks. I can wait here with you until the cab comes. I've got to wait here anyway for the tow. She pulled her cigarettes out of her pocket. Can I? He nodded, heading back to his car. Ryan walked over to the curb and sat, and then, cupping her hand, lit the cigarette and inhaled. She leaned over on her knees and put her head between her arms, closing her eyes. She still smelled the polo cologne that had rubbed off on her from Trevor's car. It seemed quieter now, easier, just the ambient hum of the breeze and buzzing streetlights. Her stomach held the leftovers of anxiety cramps, but now she felt she could breathe. Her cop turned off his car. Your cab should be here in a couple of minutes, he said, leaning against the passenger side of Trevor's ride. Ryan nodded and inhaled more of her cigarette. He had turned off the flashing lights, and the parking lot felt abandoned in the late hour. This cop had a nice face, her mother would say of him, nice and strong, and it was, with high cheekbones and angular chin. He shrugged off his jacket and handed it to her. Here, you look cold. Ryan shook her head, but he kept the jacket in her face. Come on now, I know a cold girl when I see one. Just take it. She laid her cigarette on the pavement and put on the black leather jacket. It was heavy and lined and smelled of new leather. Ryan huddled inside of it, the warmth of his body providing an instantaneously galvanic sensation. Thanks, she said, picking up her cigarette. The cop leaned back against Trevor's car. He's not my boyfriend, she blurted. The cop tilted his head. That guy, he's not my boyfriend. The police officer had on a long-sleeved shirt cuffed neatly at his wrists, and Ryan noted no wedding ring. She tugged at the arms of the jacket, the arms so long, the leather folded accordion style. She stubbed her smoke out on the pavement, producing a line of soot that sent a collection of pin-sized ants scurrying. So, he said slowly, what were you doing out with a guy like that? The lights of the signs advertising the local businesses gleamed off his polished shoes. We were just going to hang out. You were just going to hang out. She wiped her hands on the front of her jeans. Yeah. The wind whipped hard at this time, and she pulled the cuffs of the jacket over her hands. Well, Ryan Hill, the cop said, folding his arms again. You look like a pretty smart kid. I don't think I have to lecture you on the reasons why you shouldn't be doing that. Ryan stood, glancing up and down Warnell Road. Streetlights highlighted the four lanes, and for a moment there was no traffic. Right? The wind kept on mean. It may have been March in Missouri, but it still felt like winter. She licked her lips, pushed her hands into the massive coat pockets, bouncing to keep warm. Right, she mumbled, figuring him implacable, and said nothing further. A set-up semis rambled down the road, and they both turned toward the noise. She shuffled her feet, kicking at a crumbly section of concrete. A set of highlights appeared, and they both gazed at the approaching dots, but it turned out to be another passing vehicle, this time a minivan, which pulled into the 24-hour ATM at the bank across the street. Does it normally take cabs so long, she asked, knowing the answer. Of course, sometimes it does. Sometimes it does, he replied. A moment passed. She felt the need to fill up the time. How drunk was the guy? How drunk? Yeah, what, what do you call it? His blood, blood alcohol. I'm just curious. You're just curious, he laughed, a short barking laugh. His teeth were rectangular and a little large, not crooked, but looked as if they grew in too late with spaces in between them. The look was not unpleasant. She just didn't come across too many men looking like this guy in the bars. Ryan cringed. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't think he was that drunk. 
Well, the cop drawled. It wasn't exactly a southern accent. But she had found, being from Iowa, that many in Kansas City had something of a drawl. It wasn't pronounced, but it was there. Something extra added to the words. The man who was not your boyfriend was most definitely legally drunk. The reading was point one three. Oh. Driving north in Warno was the cab. She was sure of it now, the car creeping towards the intersection that had led into the lot. Following her eyesight, he saw the car, too, and waved his arms. Brian removed his coat and handed it to him as the cab pulled into the lot and drove up next to her. The hum of the motor cut into any more conversation. The cop opened the back door of the rusted-out yellow cab and greeted the driver with a hello and then ushered Ryan into the back seat. The interior of the cab smelled like old dogs and cigarette smoke, too many passengers over too many nights. Probably years and years of a day just like this one, Years and years of girls just like Ryan, 25, and having to go home in the middle of the night. Ryan slid across the black torn seats, and the cop leaned so that he could see her face a couple of feet away. You take care of yourself, okay, he commanded, bending at the waist. He handed her a $20 bill. That's for the cab fare. Thanks, she said again. She glimpsed at the driver, an old man with tufts of gray curls poking out from under his baseball cap. Then she looked back at the cop. He patted the roof of the car and moved to shut the door. She said, hey, wait. He bent back. What? I've never met a cop who was nice, but you are. She brushed her hair back from her face, leaning toward him. You are? Eh, he said, shrugging, looking past her as if embarrassed. They all say that. With this, he shut the door of the cab. The driver grasped the stick of the steering column and put the car in drive. Ryan turned and peered out the back window, then moved her head to keep her eyes on the cop as the cab weaved onto Wardle. He didn't look back at her, as she hoped he would. Instead, he walked to his car and got in the driver's seat. She continued to watch as the cab made its way towards the plaza, but the scattering of buildings blocked her view, forcing Ryan to turn and face the front, toward her apartment, toward home. An excerpt from The Mother, The Witch, and The Wolf. Written and read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, eight minutes. An excerpt from The Mother, The Witch, and The Wolf by Dave Robinson. Central Europe, 1467. Herb collecting was less tedious with company, Greed thought. She passed the time by testing Punka's knowledge. His mother had taught him well, but since he'd come from so far away, he still wasn't familiar with many of the plants Greet often used. She'd changed that. She was going to ask him about henbane when she noticed him running his fingers through the wolf fur draped over his shoulders. I could stitch a proper cloak of that for you, she offered. A wolf cloak, he asked. It would be simple. Think of it as my way of saying thank you. I guess so, he said, and knelt to pick a yellow flower. Is this one good for anything? She shrugged. It's pretty. Maybe that's enough. Is it, he asked. He gave it to her. My mother told me about a man who wore a wolf cloak and changed shape at night. Greet laughed. Campfire stories to keep my little wandering gypsy in his tent, no doubt. Punka shook his head. You didn't know my mother. Greet worried that he might suddenly burst into tears again. But he took a deep breath and said, She wouldn't have lied to me. Greet laid her hand on his head, stroking his dark hair, much like he'd been stroking the wolf fur. Sweetheart, she said, of course she wouldn't. The Rom called him a Ruvanush, wolf man. 
Punka turned his attention back to the fur, and she said he used herbs. Well, Greed said, in those stories, and I know them too, my mother's family is from the north, where men are wolves and bears, and in those stories, the animals become men again in death. So your wolf, she said, was a wolf, not a man. But the worry remained in his eyes, and she feared where his mind was, where it had been as soon as she'd been stupid enough to mention the wolf cloak. She should have known better. They're not just stories, he said. Men can become beasts. I've seen it. Some just have the fur on the inside. Greet thought about his ox cart ride through the field of the impaled on Tampa Hill near Kronstadt, of his mother burning to death at the stake, of the Bashi Bazook who had promised to find him and kill him. You may be right. She struggled to find a noteworthy specimen for him to identify, one with healing properties, maybe, to change the subject, but before she could, he said, I want to become a Ruvenouche. Greet shook her head. Some people are wolves, some are sheep. You, sweet Punka, are not a wolf. You, who've named my remaining goats and chickens, who weeps at the birth of little ones. If I were already a wolf, why would I need to become one? He asked. I know I'm weak. I couldn't kill this wolf. It let me kill him, he said, pulling the huge pelt from his shoulders for her to see. I know how that sounds, but it's true. I should have died. I was terrified, sitting in that pen with the animals, waiting, biding my time. Instead of a prowling wolf, I heard Eshter out there calling my name, screaming that I should never have left him. And then I turned around and the wolf was there. I have no idea how long it stood behind me, but there it was, just watching me. It didn't so much as growl. After we stared at each other for what seemed like forever, I fumbled for my spear and I thrust it into the wolf's chest. He died without a struggle. He gave himself to me. There's no other explanation. I can never kill a monster like this without help. He slipped the skin over his shoulders again. I can't do what I need to do on my own. And now, I don't have to. My wish came true. Greek glanced around nervously. Who was in the forest today? Had anyone heard him? She grabbed him by the shoulders. You listen to me, she hissed. Talk like this. We'll send you to the stake, just like your mother. Do you understand? I don't care, he said, sitting on a mossy log. I'm just telling the truth. The truth, she said, sitting next to him, can be very dangerous. The forest is no place for such discussions. The trees have ears. But he persisted in hushed tones. Help me, he said. I've already saved your life once. Consider this the second time. No. Punka stood, gathering the fur around him. Then I'm going to find someone who will. And get yourself killed. She pulled him back next to her on the log so she could speak more quietly. What you're talking about is witchcraft, and I'm no witch any more than your mother was. You know that. My mother never lied to me, he said. But you do. What are those charms I've seen you make? Nonsense. Silly things for silly girls. And the curses? Lower your voice, Punka. The poppets made of straw. I've seen them. Toys, she whispered. You're beginning to make me angry. Don't lie to me. You didn't know I was watching, but I was. Greet sighed. How much had he seen? Enough to cause trouble if he wanted to, she supposed. And while she thought he cared for her more than that, he was desperate. How do you think I replaced the livestock that wolf was taking, Punka? Do you think I traded a poultice for a goat? Think, boy. Do they work? Greet wanted to slap him and make him come to his senses, but she knew he'd simply press on. I imagine they do. I don't like to involve myself beyond our little exchanges. If we see each other later, it's as if nothing ever happened. Maybe nothing does. I honestly don't know, or care to know. But you won't help me. 
What you ask for isn't help. Do you know the preparation? She almost laughed. You say preparation like I'd be making you something to soothe a sour stomach. You have no idea, Punka. You do not want to do this. You don't have it in you. Punka plucked the flower from Greet's hand and studied it a bit before speaking. It's beautiful, you say? Greet nodded. I don't see that, he said. To me, it's just dead. And whenever I see death, I see Ejder. Death is everywhere, Greet. I can't get away from it. Punka sniffed the flower. I just want to see the world like I used to, like I did before him. Greet considered what he was saying. It was true. The boy was sullen and in a constant state of fear. He tried to hide it, but his nightmares woke them both nearly every night. Now that he'd fully healed, she knew he would leave, just as he said. Children could be so foolish. Why did she care about him so much? You can't leave, Punka. I'm going to need you. He survived for years without me. But I wasn't with child then. Punka dropped the flower. You're pregnant? Who's the father? Greet didn't want to explain. It was all too upsetting. She had imagined Punka being there, being part of her little family. It's not important right now, she said, but I'll need help at least through the winter. You're lying again. If only I were. But you know how to end it, he said. I don't want to. Listen, Punka, I'll make a deal with you. If you promise to stay and help through the snows, I'll give you what you want. She had expected that he might smile. He didn't. I'll tell you what you must do, but I warn you, it's terrible. I know, he said. No, I don't think you do. You must always remember that you were a boy, not a wolf. I will. At any time, as you gather your materials, you can stop. I'll think no less of you. It will be as if it never happened. And I tell you, you're safe here. You don't have to do this. You're a good boy. But he urged her to go on. The very first thing you will need is a belt, a girdle for your wolf cloak. This is no ordinary belt, Punka. It must be made from the skin of a dead man. And while the sight of his shocked face gave her hope, it would be short-lived. The next night, while the village slept, Punka set out for the graveyard. The song, Potential Ride, written and performed by Mark Rushton. Listening time, three and a half minutes.
Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.